welcome to Living with Liberty, your source for common sense and truth. I am your host, Ryan. Today we'll talk about the SEC getting into the climate game, seemingly endless emergency powers, and how the left hates the Constitution until it appears it may suit their interests. Next, on Living with Liberty. Expensive food? Well, current inflationary issues notwithstanding, of course. Sure, we all do. I think before the, uh, the inflation crisis, food prices were quite reasonable. We were even at point, had points where we were doing things like dumping milk and we had too many eggs, things like that. However, if the climate cultists have their way, and the climate cultists that are running the SEC. No, that's not the Southeastern Conference for all my uh, SEC fans out there. That's the Securities and Exchange Commission. If the new climate rules they want to put in place uh, to put on companies, it will put more pressure, more pricing pressure on food in the upward direction, of course. The SEC wants companies to put into their disclosures and reports to investors what their company's climate risks are. Things like the risk of severe weather and the financial impacts of it. And they want in those reports an accounting of how those risks of severe weather have impacted business planning and strategy and what mitigation practices the company has in place to reduce that risk. Now, whatever happened to weather events being an act of God? Whatever happened to, well, you can't control the weather. We have a saying around here in Wisconsin, if if you don't like the weather, just wait a minute, it'll change. This is ridiculous on how we have a government agency, one at that, that has nothing to do with climate. Now, potentially, passing a rule that says you have to include all this climate garbage in your financial reports, in your reports to investors. This is what we like to call in industry non-value-added work. What is this going to do 
for the companies? How does this add value to their product, to their, their overall um, reason for being actually as a company uh, to, to add in, uh, to analyze and add in the risk of severe weather to their operations? Who knows when a tornado is going to come? Who knows when the hurricane is going to come? Companies that are in these areas that are prone to this weather have already taken those mitigation risks. They've already factored that in. The SEC, which as mentioned before, has nothing to do with climate or the environment, wants businesses to start disclosing their climatological mitigation strategies to investors. Why are they even putting their fingers in where, where it doesn't belong? How about we go after the inciting, uh, insider trading that's going on? How about we take a look? How about the SEC take a look at Nancy Pelosi? And some of these other bureaucrats and elected officials who have entered office with nothing and then somehow are millionaires now. That is what the SEC should be looking into. It should be looking into what are these companies doing? Is there insider trading going on within these companies? They shouldn't have anything to do with telling companies what they need to put into their, uh, their investor uh, reports. Now, speaking of these mitigation strategies, do some companies have contingency measures in place? Absolutely, they do. Absolutely, they do. Like I said, especially if they're in areas that are prone to weather issues, they will have some sort of uh, some sort of countermeasure in place that if we have to shut this plant or warehouse down, We'll have to shift things to another plant or another warehouse, operations to another plant or another warehouse. So, of course, they think, especially if, it, if it's a more common occurrence in, in some areas. Florida, for example, where, yeah, you could get hit with a few hurricanes a year, potentially. Now, food companies in particular have contingency plans in place. There's things like bad crop years. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you've noticed... Uh, but last year, this last crop year, and I, I happen because I work in food, I happen to have this information. Otherwise, I may not have noticed otherwise. I mean, but if you've noticed, the onions and potatoes that you get in the stores uh, over the past nine months or so now, eight months, something like that, uh, you'll notice that they're smaller. Last year was a bad crop year for onions and potatoes. So as a food company, we have contingency plans that were uh, somewhat in place on what do we do when we have a bad crop year, and it looks like we're going to fall short of what we need. So companies have that in place. They're already accounting for that. It doesn't need to be reported out in an uh, SEC-regulated document. But it's not just limited to this, of course. Of course, there's a deeper story here as to why the SEC is looking for uh, companies to put in, in into their reports these mitigation strategies. It, it, there's a much broader reason, a broader reason, and it goes to show the left's obsession with attempting to control everything. It goes to show their obsession with government control and government having the answer to everything. And it's it's just unreal. 
we're going to if the SEC gets this in place, we're we're going down a path. You, we're, we're already hearing about food shortages. Now you, they, they go down this path. Extra regulation. We we all know extra regulation doesn't do a thing. It, it makes things worse from a business perspective. When you have unnecessary regulation, some of it's good, some of it's necessary. This is not one of those things. There's no way a business can or should plan for every little weather event that could happen. Tornadoes are are a common occurrence in a large portion of the country. Do businesses really put forth a huge contingency plan for one wiping out their operations? Like I said, if it's if it's a very commonplace, uh, you know, I'm thinking Tornado Alley, right? They probably do more contingency planning about a uh, around a tornado wiping out their their operations than um, you know elsewhere where you, know, you might see a tornado or two a year, um, but it's not a huge occurrence. It's not something we need to spend time as a company planning around. The the risk is small. Why would you? Spend a ton of time on something that that the risk is so small. Do you spend hours thinking about if you're going to cross the street or not because you might get hit by a car? No, because the risk is small. You say, well, yeah, it could happen, but I'm going to be careful, look both ways and cross the street, right? I, there's not even a, I, I don't have to write a, a report on it. I don't have to spend, like I said, hours thinking about it. Do I really want to cross the street or not? it's a small risk. I'm going to cross the street. I'm going to be careful. Of course, I'll, you know, do, do what I need to do to mitigate the risk of getting hit by a car, but I'm not, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on scoping out a huge plan. Same thing here. If, if, if some sort of natural event is a, a low risk, you're not going to put as a business, you're not going to put a, a huge amount of time into to, to creating a bunch of contingency plans that and maintaining them at that, that you'll, you'll never need to use, you know, probably. So small risk, yet the government wants to control everything. That's the play here. It has nothing to do with that. It's, it's to push this climate cult agenda. That that's the plan here. That's the play. That's why they're requiring this, or I should say propose. It's not gone through yet as a rule, but it's on the table we, we, we with the the climate cultists in our government now we know it's it's going to get pushed through we just know that so what should companies be focusing on what is this going to if if companies have to now spend time focused on these reports for climate risk and and storm risk and whatever else what is that going to take away from because we all know companies have Limited resources. They have finite resources like everybody else, like you and me. So what should they be focused on instead? Well, they should be focused on contingency planning for things like losing a key supplier or an extended outage at a plant not caused by a weather event that's a small risk to that plant. Those are the things that these companies should focus on. These are going to be more value-added. Now, this idea of reporting on climate risk in annual reports or in quarterly reports isn't even the most 
troubling part of the SEC's quest to control the economy. That's what this is. It's the left's attempt to take over our economy. It's the left's attempt to use government to use government to squeeze companies into doing what they want to do, into buying into this climate nonsense. Climate changes all the time. They're using the, the, this arm of the government as a mechanism to control companies to get them to fully buy into the climate nonsense. I'm not saying we shouldn't protect the environment. I'm not saying we, we, we shouldn't do what we can to reduce emissions and everything else. You'll remember back, I had uh, B.J. Gann on the show about regenerative agriculture, which is a great thing to help clean up the environment, to help sequester the carbon in our environment. Those are the things we should be focused on. We shouldn't be focused on the government trying to take over the economy, the government trying to squeeze companies into doing and 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 controlling their agenda, the agenda of the companies, that is. Companies there to, to provide shareholder value, make our lives better as a society. It's not there to, to, to pass the, the government's uh, the agenda. That, that's not the purpose here, and that's what the SEC is wanting to do. Like I said, this isn't even the most troubling part, this extra reporting requirement. It's this next thing, this next item. As part of this rules package, the SEC would require corporations to calculate their total greenhouse gas footprint, including from the supply chain. Now, you may be saying, well, Ryan, that doesn't sound that bad. This is a supply chain. It's it's just from the point of manufacturer to maybe the company's warehouse to their customer's warehouse, right? Not exactly. This is the total supply chain from end customer all the way back to the raw material supplier. And yes, that would include those independent farmers in the third world countries where companies like General Mills source their cocoa so you can go go cuckoo for cocoa puffs. Farmers that would have no ability to efficiently and accurately measure their carbon footprint would then have to leave it up to the companies to do it for themselves. And what does that mean if a company has to go in and look at this farm, uh, this farming operation, and and say, okay, how much how much you know carbon uh, is being released into the the atmosphere here? How how big of a carbon footprint does this little farm have? And because these are typically uh, the, these these like cocoa farms where where these big companies source their cocoa from or their palm oil or anything else are typically small operations, right? So imagine how many of those it takes to feed a company like General Mills making Cocoa Puffs, for example. How many farms would these companies have to go to observe and do some calculations on to to figure out what the carbon footprint is just of that piece, just of the piece, the, the starting piece of the cocoa bean itself and, and getting that from, you know, seed to, uh, to shipping on to the next uh, stage of, of uh, processing to eventually be made into a, you know, cocoa puff here. 
Well, 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 what does that mean then? If companies have to do this, well, that's that means it's hiring people to just analyze data. It's not even hiring people to to improve the product, to add any sort of value. It's hiring people that are just going to analyze the data, that are going to do these calculations. It means that they have to send people to these farms to see the operation to make those calculations. And what happens then? Because this is all increased cost to a company. What does that mean then? Well, it's, there's one of two things that'll happen then if this gets put into place and companies have to do this. It means either the company cheapens the product to avoid a cost increase, or, and honestly, just leaving the, the uh, consumer with an unsatisfactory experience, or the company raises its prices. Either way, we lose as consumers. I mean, we're seeing this already. Any of you that shop at Aldi may have noticed that their napkins and their toilet paper now are, are smaller. They've shrunk them so they didn't have to raise the price. That's what the, the, the choices that get made when you have things that happen like this. Now, not, that's in relation to inf uh, the inflationary pressure, but the same thing could happen here. Right? You cheapen the product. How do you cheapen the product? Well, you use less quality, uh, lower quality ingredients. You make the package size less. That's how you cheapen a product. You're adding more cost in having to calculate all this nonsensical uh, information that you can't really get a handle on. You don't have a good way to get a handle on. Uh, the end product, you have to do something. People are only going to pay what they for something what in accordance with what the value is. You know, I look at, at 12 packs of soda now. It's like, well, I'm not buying that if it's not on sale anymore. And things are like seven bucks, maybe even more. I haven't looked lately. Freaking cereals, you know, even the small boxes of what, four bucks now? I mean, come on. People, there's a, a value, an inherent value people are only willing to pay for. And companies know that. They know they're not going to be able to raise prices necessarily. So what do they do? Well, first they... They're, like I said, they'll, they'll shrink packaging, they'll cheapen the, the quality of the product, and then you get hit with a price increase anyway because, you know, that it doesn't work that way. You, people are going through more product. They'll, they'll say, well, this isn't as good. I'm going to try something else, and costs keep rising anyway. Companies still raise the prices. So now you have a smaller package, a crappier product, and higher prices anyway, all because of government policy and government regulation. In many cases, we don't like to be absolutists here. Now, to put into scope how big of a task this would be, companies typically have thousands of suppliers around the globe within their first tier of, of, of vendors. So that's that would be the ones they have the direct transactions with to, to get the raw inputs for whatever that company is making. They typically have thousands of those around the globe. Imagine a big multinational, huh? how big of a task that would be. Now, though, because this rule would be the entire supply chain, you have a second tier of suppliers, the suppliers of the suppliers, so to speak. And then the third tier, well, you get the point at this point. The other thing we need to consider here is the suppliers are are privately held companies themselves, especially 
when you're talking about international companies at that, when you're sourcing globally, those companies may opt to not share information uh, to those upstream companies. They may opt to, to say, we're not making that information known because General Mills needs to calculate their carbon footprint. I'm not giving them the data to do that. I'm not giving them insight into our operations. Just because the United States uh, government wants that doesn't mean uh, you know, cocoa uh, farmer here in and the Ivory in the Ivory Coast. I need to provide that information to them. I don't. They have no authority over me, so it makes it impossible to calculate the carbon footprint anyway in that scenario. So what you're left with then is companies having to use averages. They're having to use uh, other, uh, call it more general data that's available to try and make these calculations. And what happens then? Well, the data isn't accurate then. The actual carbon footprint of that company is not accurate then. Because it could be higher, right? Their carbon footprint could be higher because we're just using averages, right? Or it could be lower. We don't know. If, if the data isn't available, if hard numbers aren't available, then you know, we're, it's left a chance and you still have this army of people who these companies hired to do this, making making it so that we have to have crappier products and and more expensive products at that. Many of these companies are just small businesses. We don't have big companies supplying big companies as a rule. A lot of the suppliers are mid to small uh, size companies. They don't have resources. They don't have the capability to calculate carbon footprint numbers. So it becomes an impossible task. And as I mentioned before, let's just imagine the cost of trying to capture this data now that you have an understanding of how many tiers of of the supply chain this would have to go through. Imagine the money spent capturing, analyzing, and reporting this data. And it's money that would be better spent on taking actual action to reduce emissions, right? Let the companies keep the money, incentivize it somehow to reduce emissions. Or, you know, maybe there's some sort of carbon capture process that they could put in place if they had the money that they weren't paying to to, uh, be compliant with government regulations. I mean, these are things like I mentioned before, regenerative agriculture in farming or utilizing the carbon emissions from a process back into that company's process of, of production. Companies have finite resources. They're only going to allocate them to one initiative. And if that initiative is to satisfy government reporting requirements to be in compliance with the law, that means things like an innovation in product or process to improve emissions or reduce emissions go by the wayside. They're not going to invest in those things. No one is going to argue that cleaner air is better air. No one's going to say, I want to live in a dirty cesspool with smog everywhere and, and, you know, water I can't drink. Nobody says that. People and companies are, are going to do the right thing. And it, honestly, it's up to uh, we, the people, to hold these companies accountable when they're, when they're polluting. We don't need the government to do it. If, do we value clean water or not? Do we value uh, clean air or not? 
we, the people, hold the power. If you're not a company that's that that's on board with that, then I won't buy stuff from you, and you'll wither and die, right? Because you're polluting my water, you're making my life hell. Oh, I'm just not going to support you as a company, plain and simple. And nobody's going to argue that cleaner air is better air. But we need to have common sense in how we get there. More onerous reporting rules instituted by the government is not the answer on getting there. Incentivizing companies to do the right thing, maybe through government, more aptly through we the people, I think, is the better answer to get there. Let the market handle it. Okay, before moving on to our next story of the day here, I have a couple of asks. If you are on Facebook, go give the Living with Liberty page a follow. We're posting content content there until they decide to give us the boot. You know, we'll see. We're we're new yet, so it might take a little bit, but you know, some of the stuff we tackle here and and uh what we talk about has historically been censored on uh on you know uh Facebook there. So Give us, a, give us a like over there. Give us a follow if you're uh, on Facebook still. If you're not on Facebook, I understand I'm not going to ask you to join there <laughs> just to follow the page. Um, we've got plenty of other outlets that uh, I know a lot of you follow anyway already. If you have any feedback or want to ask you know, a question here on the show, email me, ryan at livingwithlibertypodcast.com. I'll read the feedback on the show. And if you are listening on a platform that allows for reviews, give us a five-star review. If you can't give us a five-star, email me your feedback and I'll read it on the show. I'm, uh, I'm always willing to, to laugh at myself. So, All right, on to our next, uh, next story here. So the COVID scam is all about the Democrats and... Uh, what they're trying to do and, and really their attempts to maintain grip on power. One of the biggest mistakes we, the people made is not challenging the governmental overreach in trampling our God given constitutionally protected rights. When, when municipalities and States started shutting things down, Uh, you know, I, to a certain degree, I, I understood to a point. Okay. Two weeks. You know, we didn't know what we were dealing with. Okay. I, okay. We, I, I think maybe that's reasonable, right? We don't know. Uh, but after that, the, just the continued trampling of our rights, we should have been at the doors of those elected officials after two weeks and said, what are you doing? The, you, you are just trampling all over the Constitution. Open things back up. People can't make a living. We can't assemble. Well, some of us couldn't assemble. Let me put it that way. And nowhere in the Constitution does it say, if there's a pandemic, all rights get thrown out the window. That, that's not how a free society works. We evaluate the risks for ourselves and make our own choices. That, that's how a free society works. Now, two years plus into this thing, where a lot of co- govern, uh, governments of other countries uh, have, have um, opened things up, a lot of states have opened things up, municipalities, we still have a number of governors out there that are not relinquishing the unilateral, 
unilateral power they grabbed by issuing endless states of emergencies in response to COVID. I said it on a previous show that the unilateral emergency powers governors have need to be time and frequency bound. Now, in most cases, they are time bound. I believe here in Wisconsin, it's 60 days, I want to say, that um, uh, an emergency order is by the governor is good for. But that length, like the, the being time bound, the length of time is way too long in, in most cases. An emergency order should last no more than two weeks. And any extensions after that need to be agreed upon with the legislature of that state. End of story. It, if you have a governor grabbing unilateral authority to shut states down to do these things uh, that we saw during COVID... That, that isn't a constitutional republic. That's basically a monarchy. That, that's a, a dictatorship. That's not how we're set up. That's not how our states are set up. Most of our states, if not all, state governments are modeled after our federal government. So, in the legislature, those uh, people there are the representatives of the people. And any extensions by the executive of the state need to be agreed upon with the people's representatives. End of story. There's no reason for emergency orders to last more than two weeks. Two weeks is more than enough time to get a handle on what's going on, to, to gather data, to, to get uh, traction on what needs to be done, what recommendations need to be this just blew into a unilateral power grab where governors of these states then became monarchs. They became dictators, and some of them still. And what we see, uh, have seen, and continue to see is authoritarian governors just continuing to extend emergency orders or just issue new ones uh, a new order after new order to maintain their grip on power. Think uh, California comes to mind, um, and New York. The, the, these endless orders, just and, and they go unchecked. Now I get it. In some of these states, the majority of the people want it. Fine, I guess you know, but it's always the squeaky wheel that gets to grease. So if, if the minority is, uh, files, um, you know, some sort of lawsuit saying that these endless orders are a, a violation of the constitution, there are judges out there that will listen to that. Now, the worst part of it, of all of this, as if there is anything worse than unchecked power in the hands of one person, is the authority that has been granted to the public health bureaucracies who are totally unaccountable to the people. They do what they want. These unaccountable bureaucrats were granted wide authority to institute rules shutting down businesses, shutting down schools, issuing mask and vaccine mandates. Who the hell are these people? We didn't elect them. They are basically they exist because our legislative class 
didn't want to make the hard decisions, so they punted to bureaucrats who are unaccountable to anybody. What happens? They come in, in front of a, a panel of, of elected officials, have a little hearing, and whatever has happened out of any of this, nothing. So they're unaccountable, period. The, the legislators aren't doing anything. The legislators aren't moving to fire these people. That's, that's the even bigger issue here. We don't even, it's not even necessarily a, a dictatorship because of hand, the powers in the hands of, of a governor. It, it, it's, we've got health officials that should have no, uh, no uh, ability to even sniff having any effect on people and their lives, making rules for us. That that is the more troubling part is we have unchecked power in the hands of unelected people. That's not how a constitutional republic works. Hell, it's not even how a democracy works. It's how the uh, a totalitarian administrative state works. Do what we say, underclass. That's what we have here with this garbage. Now, looking at this, yeah, they're, like I said, um, kind of at the opening of this segment here, we still have many states that are, and governors that are just trying to maintain their grip on power. They see, they see that the, the time is coming where they're going to get the boot. They're just trying to maintain their grip on power. They got drunk on being able to tell people what to do, and then the barking seals in the crowd just saying, okay, we'll do it. Throw us another fish. We'll do it. Whatever you say. Oh, put on 15 masks. Okay, where's my fish? We have the Democrat governor of Nevada who has basically just issued a perpetual state of emergency. The Democrat governor of Kansas has issued a state of emergency until January 2023, even though the public health director there, who was a political ally, has questioned the need for the continued state of emergency. So some of them get it. The Democrat governor of North Carolina vetoed legislation that would require wider input from elected leaders if he wished to continue his ability to issue restrictions under a declared emergency. Now, thankfully there, the legislature got around that veto by attaching the measure to a budget bill which then passed. That's what we need to do. Restrict the power of these these corrupt clowns that just want to maintain their grip on telling people what to do. That they just want to maintain their power of being able to trample the Constitution. Now, I, you may have noticed a trend there. Yes, you know, his, uh, history here says it's been the Democrat governors and legislatures that have done this, that have, that have wielded this unchecked power, that have trampled the Constitution. But, but, to be fair, because honestly, I'm, I'm no fan of government, period. We have to be fair. The phenomenon of holding on to unchecked powers not limited to the Democrats, not by a long shot. 
Republican governors in Ohio, North Dakota, and Indiana vetoed bills passed by their legislatures that limited the emergency powers of governors. So not even, not even the Democrats, but the Republicans, the swampy Republicans, do it as well. The Republicans that, mind you, we hear spouting off about protecting our rights and Constitution and blah, 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 rejected bills passed by their legislatures that limited their emergency powers. What does that tell you? Ohio, North Dakota, Indiana, vote those clown governors out. You, they've, they've shown themselves, they've shown their butts to you, you know what they're about, get rid of them. Now again, thankfully, those vetoes in those states were overridden and emergency powers of the governors were ultimately curbed. I'm not going to argue here that we don't need the governors. They're the executors of the state government. They do need some limited, limited authority to declare emergencies so resources within the government and the state can be mobilized. That's what it's there for. To assess, so there's time to assess the situation, get the resources needed, and clean up whatever mess you know the emergency is being called for. That should not be any more than two weeks, as I've said before. Absolute power corrupts absolutely, and even though the scales here seem to be tipped more towards one party, members of both are desperate to hold on to the unchecked and absolute emergency power they seized during the pandemic. This is why, this is why it is so critical. We read, study, defend, and assert our rights, our God-given rights, as guaranteed by the Constitution, as granted by God. The First Amendment clearly states that Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion. Oh, but states shut churches down. Where were we when churches were being shut down? Where were we saying with our constitutions, open to the First Amendment, that said there shall be no law made prohibiting the free exercise of religion. Where were we? Sleeping. Sleeping. That's where we were. We have to read, study, defend, and assert our constitutional rights. Otherwise, they get trampled. Congress shall make no law prohibiting the free exercise of religion or the right of the people to peaceably assemble. Yet we saw that, didn't we? Certain groups got to not so peaceably assemble, but the ones that peaceably assembled were turned away. Some were arrested. Congress shall make no law. If Congress shall make no law, then why the hell did we, and in some cases, we still are, allowing unelected health bureaucrats and power-hungry governors to continue to trample our protected rights without defending them more vigorously. Our constitutional rights are not suspended because of a pandemic. Our constitutional rights are not suspended because of some emergency. 
The Constitution is the supreme law of the land. So no matter what measures the health department put in place, if it violates the Constitution, it's a non, uh, a null and void mandate, period. They shouldn't even be putting mandates in place anyway. Legislatures have the authority to make law, period. If an agency puts down a mandate, it's not a law. It's a suggestion. But how do we get there? We only know how to do this. We only understand how to do this by reading, studying, defending, and asserting our constitutional rights. You might be sitting there saying, Ryan, the founders didn't have the foresight to, into things like pandemics to, to put a clause in the Constitution that says rights should be suspended in emergencies. The founders couldn't have ever foreseen that in 2020 where we're going to have a worldwide pandemic. Now, I would counter that by saying they, they being the founders, they knew exactly what they were doing by not including exception-based wording in the Constitution. Exception-based wording opens up a path to authoritarianism. Just like allowing our fear of a virus to stop us from pushing back immediately on emergency orders that overreached and infringed upon our God-given and constitutionally protected rights. Now, I would call myself a constitutional absolutist. What it says is what it says. There is no room for uh, personal interpretation of what it says. The words are clear. The language is clear. Shall make no law. Shall not be infringed. There's no exceptions in what was written in the Constitution, in our founding documents, by our founding fathers. There's no exceptions in there. It doesn't say, shall not be infringed unless there's you know, a ton of mass shootings. It's, shall make no law unless there's a pandemic. There's no exceptions like that in our Constitution. The language is very clear. And the more we defend and assert our Constitution, the less the petty tyrants posing as our representatives will get away with uh, in terms of trying to steal and, try and, and that's what it is. It's stealing our rights crumb by crumb. All right, before we get on to the last topic of, of uh, the day here and how the left hates the Constitution and, until they don't, I have a little PSA again for my Wisconsin listeners. We are fast approaching the United We Stand, We the People rally at the state capitol in Madison on April 30th and May 1st. There will be many speakers there, and those speakers will include David Clark, Tim Ramthan, Janelle Branchin, and many, many others. Come out and show your support for election integrity, ending emergency powers, and for medical freedom. For more information, go to the Facebook page, United We Stand, We the People, or email United We Stand, We the People, 2022 at gmail.com. It's our government, and it's time to show the elites we are ready to reclaim it. Okay, on to our last story. The left hates the Constitution until they don't. A Bernie Sanders-founded group has been going around 
attempting to use Section 3 of the 14th Amendment to try and get these so-called insurrectionists, insurrectionists in our government currently serving disqualified from the ballots in their upcoming races for re-election. Now, Marjorie Taylor Greene has been the most talked about and has gotten the most publicity, and there's a reason why that is the case, and we'll get to that in a minute. But, like I said, this group has been going around looking for, I'd say looking for, insurrectionists. They've gone and they've tried to also bring the same kind of suit uh, that um, Marjorie Taylor Greene is facing. They've tried to bring that suit against Paul Gosar and Andy Biggs, both of Arizona, as well as Madison Cawthorn of North Carolina. Now, here's the interesting point. Gosar, Biggs, and Cawthorn have had the suits against them thrown out immediately as they should have been. The Insurrection Clause of the 14th Amendment was put in place to prevent Confederates from serving in the government after the Civil War. Now, the wording of this clause is this. No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. But Congress may by a, two, a vote of two-thirds of each house remove such disability. Now, in a nutshell, this is uh, what the clause says. It says that active participants in rebellion or insurrection against the U.S. who swore an oath to the Constitution shall be disqualified from holding office and that Congress holds the power to make this determination. What this Bernie Sanders group has attempted to do is paint January 6th as an insurrection. Obviously, we, we keep hearing about it on MSDNC and CCPNN. The insurrection. Because that's the other thing. It's COVID or it's insurrection. Sprinkle in a little climate. Climate change, climate cultists, and, you know, the, the sky is falling. And uh, it, the world's getting warmer, even though this spring around here has been crap it's been 10 degrees cooler so uh, good luck with telling me the climate is <laughs> is changing because of what we're doing the climate changes because that's what's happened on earth uh, uh, for its entire history ever since it was created the climate has changed it's all a, a control an attempt to control get people scared and control them that's what this is about anyway a little off topic there so anyway this Bernie Sanders group or created group has attempted to, founded group I think is probably more accurate, has attempted to paint January 6th as an insurrection in these lawsuits and that Taylor Green, Gosar, Biggs, and Cawthorn were aiding and abetting said insurrection. So they should be disqualified for holding office uh, for doing so. As I mentioned, three of the suits were thrown out immediately. 
Now, in the case of Gosar and Biggs, the judge noted that Congress has not created civil private right of action to allow a citizen to enforce the disqualification clause by having a person declared to be not qualified to hold public office. So, that judge got it right. Congress makes the determination, not private citizens. I can't go and say, uh, yeah, this representative, uh, I didn't like what they did. They participated in this fake insurrection. Um, They should be disqualified from office. I'm going to bring a suit against that. No, this judge said no, that Congress has the right to do that, that and Congress only. No citizen can enforce the disqualification clause. Now, in the case of Cawthorn, the judge ruled that the enforcement of the clause, and this is a little bit different interpretation here, I guess, or a little bit different application of the law and understanding the law, but it still gets the job done. The judge said this, that the enforcement of the clause was removed by Congress by two laws, the Amnesty Act of 1872, which said that all political disabilities imposed by the section no longer applied to the people, with certain exceptions, and the Amnesty Act of 1898, which ended the disabilities for everyone else. So that leaves us still with the question as to why Marjorie Taylor Greene's suit has been sent to a hearing before a judge. Well, you want to know the reason? I'll tell you the reason. The reason the suit against MTG was filed, uh, or, or heard, I should say, is because it was filed in a court with an Obama-appointed judge who basically ignored the rulings set forth in the cases of Cawthorn, Biggs, and Gosar. That's the only reason the suit against Taylor Greene went to hearing instead of being thrown out. Obama's activists on the bench strike again. The constitutional amendment is clear. The language in it is clear. Like I said, I'm a a constitutional absolutist. What it says is what it says, and we need to follow what it says. And if you have any doubts as to why it says what it says, there's actually a, um, a journal, if you will, written during the time that the constitutional convention took place that notes why the Founding Fathers worded things the way they worded it. It gives insight into what they were thinking. So if you're unclear about the wording, go look at that. The the Constitution isn't open for personal interpretation. The language is clear in it. There, uh, There has not been one conviction for insurrection related to January 6th. There hasn't even been a charge of insurrection for against anybody for January 6th. So when there is no insurrection, there can be no participants. If we didn't have an insurrection, there's no participants in an insurrection. But judicial activists do not care about those little details. Eh, it didn't happen. I felt like it happened. So it happened. Because I felt it. That, that's basically what's going on here. Well, we got an Obama, Obama judge here that says, yeah, yeah, we're, we're going to hear this. Um, actually, I don't like Marjorie Taylor Greene that much. 
Uh, I'm an activist judge. And uh, yeah, we had a few cases already thrown out. The language, uh, you know, I, I, I don't feel that that's right. Doesn't come, the, the Constitution doesn't comport with my worldview. So eh, we're going to hear this. So I don't care about these other little details. So judicial activists, they, they, they don't care about those little details. But, but that's not the point of this either, I don't think. The point here is to create a distraction. It's to keep this January 6th narrative going because, like I said, it's this and COVID and climate change, and that's what, uh, what the lunatics in the Democrat Party are clinging to at this point. As we get closer to, to the election, we'll probably start sprinkling in white supremacy and racism again. They may, uh, may you know, they might go to uh, the BLM closet and open that back up again. The point here is to keep this as a distraction, and it's a distraction from what's going on in the disaster that this whole Democrat Party has become, and the disaster that is our country right now. The point here is to create that distraction. And maybe, just maybe, it's wishful thinking at this point, but maybe so enough doubt that the Democrats maybe only lose 75 seats instead of 80 in the House come November. This is purely a political play. Find an activist judge and hope the suit makes it to a hearing at least. That's what they were hoping for, and they found it in Georgia with Marjorie Taylor Greene. There is no reasonable claim to apply the insurrection clause here. There is no insurrection. The amendment is clear. It is up to both chambers of Congress, a two-thirds vote, to make the determination if someone can serve, not private citizens bringing a lawsuit. This is, again, just illustrates why it is so important, it is so important to ensure candidates for office, especially an office that gets to make appointments for lifetime seats. We need to make sure these people that we are electing to office are vetted thoroughly for their understanding of our Constitution and for their commitment to uphold it as originally intended by our founding fathers. I'll tell you this, M, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene will be on the ballot in Georgia in the fall. I'm not sure if she's facing a primary. I don't think so. Um, she will be on the ballot. There's no way with the precedent already being set in the other cases of in Arizona and, and North Carolina that the suit against her is ultimately uh, dismissed. It, it will be dismissed. There's no way that it doesn't get dismissed with precedent already being set. The burden of proof here is to show an insurrection took place and that MTG aided in it. And seeing as how we have no charges that have been filed against anybody for an insurrection, and seeing how the FBI has already publicly stated no insurrection took place, it's going to be a tough sell for uh, th this group bringing the suit against Marjorie Taylor Greene. It's going to be a tough sell for them to say she aided an insurrection and therefore should be kept off the ballot. What this amounts to is grasping at straws. It, it's, it's, like I said, a distraction. It's grasping at straws 
to ease some of the pain for the Democrats in an attempt, I should say. It's not going to guaranteed. I don't think it will, period. But it's an attempt to ease some of the pain that is coming for them in November. Friends, that's my show for today. Thank you for listening. Please check out my website, livingwithlibertypodcast.com. There you'll find links to my past shows, my original articles, as well as other resources to help arm you with knowledge in fighting off the prevailing narratives of the day. While on my website, shop my store, Living With Liberty Outfitters. Lastly, I'd be so grateful if you shared, subscribed, and left a positive review of the show, should your listening platform allow. Subscribing helps us move up the charts and helps more people find the truth. I appreciate you spending part of your day with me. Please help us spread the truth by sharing my show and website with friends and family, as well as on your social media accounts. My website is livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Also, let's connect. Follow me on Parlor. My handle is at livingwithliberty. You can also email me. The address is ryan at livingwithlibertypodcast.com. Liberty isn't a given. We must fight to protect it. Working together, we will do exactly that. Until next time. <laughs>